Eat, drink, chat with Soho House. Hello and welcome to Eat, Drink, Chat with Soho House. I'm Jonathan Heath, your host for this London instalment, where I'll be talking to an extraordinary lineup of guests who are at the forefront of film, music, art, fashion, and beyond. Join me as each episode I catch up with a different person over breakfast, coffee, lunch, cocktails, dinner, and room service, all coming to you from Soho houses around London. Here we go, in through the double doors. Reception. Hi there, how are you doing? Welcome. I would love to check in, please. Of course. Today, I'm ordering room service with award-winning journalist and broadcaster Emma Barnett. Emma has built a reputation as a broadcaster at the top of her game. At 26 years old, she became the youngest person to host Women's Hour on BBC Radio 4. Now she hosts her own show on BBC Radio 5 Live and can regularly be seen putting politicians through their paces on Newsnight. Emma's recently released book, Period, addresses our discomfort with talking about monthly cycles, aiming to remove stigma and banish myths for good. Here we are. Home for the night. There it is. Come in. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Emma. Hi. Should we have a hug? Let's have a hug. Okay. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? It's very nice to see you. Thanks for welcoming me to your bedroom. My abode. Here we are. The bath is near the bed. I don't usually so... sit and have lunch with a man I don't know very well next to a bath. Here we are. Thank you, you for having me. My pleasure. Beautiful blooms as well. Absolutely. So you've just done three hours of radio. So how do you feel after three hours of radio normally? Um, hungry. So right. this is why I agreed to this predominantly for food. Right. And Excellent. good chats. <laughs> no, I'm like, I, I, the chat starts to die a bit at four o'clock. So you're still oh, getting sure. me in a... You're still in the zone. The post-adrenaline, let's talk to the nation-state. Who was on your show today? We had um, Ian Hislop. Oh, excellent. Uh, we're talking about, is it beyond satire? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <laughs> um, somebody wrote in today for Ian saying, do you think being a satirist is a real job? <laughs> I know you slate politicians, but at least they're trying to do something. And, you know, Ian, true to form, went... Well, you must have met my mother, who has been hoping for the last 32 years I would get a real job. But they just don't care. They go for it. Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, look, let's have a look at the menu Sorry. quickly because you are yeah, hungry. I'd love okay. to. You've already looked. What are you going for? Uh, you know what? Um, I have looked. You're right. I've cheated. <laughs> uh, I might go for the Parmigiana. OK, I'm going to go. I'm thinking also what's good to chew while we're on air. OK. Ever the pro. Look at that. I once did a woman's hour on Christmas Day. This is the weirdest conversation, but I, I just go there. And I had Yota Motolenghi cooking for me Great. in the studio. Amazing. With, um, with two other chefs. But it was Yota I always remember because, I mean, who, who else? Can, you, you just want to say that's happened to you, right? Absolutely. But anyone who's seen a Radio 4 stove... <laughs> would feel for him because it's like two hobs from school <laughs> a from Bunsen home burner, basically. basically a Bunsen burner <laughs> and a man sits in the corner it's usually a man with a fire extinguisher looking quite threatening during this experience and then I think it was actually not him but he was having a, a, a mare with some sauce he was doing because you know he has a million ingredients or yeah. something was going on he was and then it was Allegra who was there as well um McEverdy I believe her name and she set fire to the goose 
You had a goose cooking so in, she, in the she, studio. So she pre-cooked it. I mean, that's... Come in to finish okay. it off. <laughs> and then had one of those, what they call, where you glaze the top, like caramelise it. You know what I'm talking about. I, I, and I'm nodding, but I... And the briefly yeah. set fire. So that was the last time I ate on air. OK, well, this is that's a good prospect. I'm going to go for the veal, <laughs> veal milanese. Great, look, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to order. OK, dialing zero, I was told. So let's try that. Hello, reception. Can I order some food, please, to room number 12? That would be great. Can we get one veal milanese, please? Uh, one parmigiana. And we're going to get two glasses of Riesling, please. Fantastic. Thank you so much indeed. Do you get to travel a lot? Uh, not as much at the moment. No. But since having our son 21 months ago, it's not a holiday. It's just, how did one of my friends put it? It's um, same shit, different postcode, worse kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Have we, you done the kid thing? We have two daughters. Oh, wow, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, we know that. But we they know, need to get know. to a different age, perhaps, where it gets I guess so. Easier. I don't know. Yeah. Tell me that, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, when they can look after themselves, it's, you know, then it's just fine. Okay. It's just then you just have to worry about, the, you know, water and stuff like that. But that, <laughs> that, I'm at that stage. Now. Yeah, I like that stage. So they, that can, sounds... they can pretty much look after it, laugh yeah. themselves now. Yeah, it's good. Well, we did, we, did, well, we did a lot of trouble before, I think. Yeah. So talking about, I guess, journalism as such, mm. You moved into radio from print. Yes. Why was that? How did you make that transition? Was it... Are you mid-transition, is this one? No, I'm not in any kind of transition. <laughs> I probably should be in some sort of transition, especially in that regard. Yes. Things as, um, you know, print is struggles. having some hard times. Yeah. But I still, I still I love believe it. in it, yeah. No, no, so do I. I. I think, well, especially with magazines, you know, there's, there's always going to be a special place for magazines. Mm. Um, I was at The Telegraph, yes, and before that I was a business reporter at a magazine called Media Week. That was my oh, yeah. first job. Yeah. Uh, and while I was at The Telegraph, I first was covering technology and media, and I loved explaining what I was writing about. And often what I was writing about was the human relationships, how our lives were changing because mm. of technology, not mm -hmm. like the mm -hmm. traditional... Um, where you could write about it, you know, about gadgets or anything. I wasn't doing. Were you're not testing. You, you, you're telling me you're not testing sort of five microwaves. Absolutely not. No. I mean, yes, I did once <laughs> in a terrible TV show that I greatly enjoyed called Gadget Geeks. Um, but no, I was trying to be. What is this doing to yeah. us? And I loved it, and I used to find it really exciting to talk about it. And mm. so I started to be booked by the BBC quite a lot because I think a I was a rarity as a woman right. covering technology. Yeah. And B, because I could explain it in sort of human speak, mm. it, that was also a good thing. And, mm. and the more I did of it, I, I thought, this is really good fun. And then there was a tipping point for me when I tracked down the founders of Twitter, Biz Stone and Evan Williams mm. in San Francisco. That was also a whole other story in itself, as I, you know, tried to get them drunk in a bar uh, and, and give me all of the, the details. And, and, you know, I got to know them a little and it was a really good interview, uh, you know, half sort of written in eyeliner on my hand and half <laughs> recorded. And I listened back to the recording and I had to write it up straight away. So I was sort of up all night because of the yeah. time difference. And I thought to myself, gosh, I really wish other people could hear this right. because they were so frank. Mm. They were so interesting about this little microblogging platform that mm. no one knew anything about. And I thought, oh, it exists. It's called radio. So I went about, my first show was for LBC, right. the speech network, yeah. um, which was just London at the time. And I did the graveyard shift, one till five in the morning, when I finally convinced them to give me a go. Because radio slash broadcast is a really weird line of work in the way that you could only do it by doing it. Okay. It, do you mean get better at it? Or, well, or... 
the only way also that you can begin the job yeah. is by being on air. On air, there's no... And you could be horrendous. Okay. And, you know, you probably are at first, and I definitely have, I hope, improved. Um, <laughs> but I was hooked. Like, yeah. I did want that first shift. I remember it as if it was yesterday. And I remember a female bouncer rang me at three o'clock in the morning getting off shift from a London club. Yeah. And I remember there'd been a slut march, you know, to try and reclaim, I don't know if you remember this, the word slut. And she said, well, you know, some women just are sluts. <laughs> and they just have to deal with that. And it was so, boom, yeah. there you go. There's yeah. a frontline view. A front, of... front yes, exactly. So I loved yeah. it. Amazing. <laughs> so, um, I mean, radio was dear to your heart growing up. Did you listen to us radio growing up? I did listen a lot more to music growing up, music yeah. radio, rather than speech. But... Actually, on Radio 1, which was a large part of my listening habit, yeah. uh, there was a lot of speech because I'd listen yeah. to The Breakfast Programme a lot mm. and then at weekend try and learn about music from different people. And, you know, I did used to do that thing of taping the radio, yeah. taping the yeah. music and trying to stop it so I didn't <laughs> have any of the speech just to get my mixtape. Um, <laughs> but I did have this little radio, and that's what I love about radios is they're really hardy. You know, yeah. I know you can get beautiful radios and Roberts and all of that, but it was a really quite crap sort mm. of probably 15 quid job that was black and small with a, you know, a little dial on. And I used to, when I think back at how geeky I must have looked, <laughs> I used to sit it next to my cereal in the morning <laughs> and properly love it. And there was also the local radio station, Piccadilly 103, Key right. 103, which is where Chris Evans actually did start with Danny ah, Baker. Right, okay. I doubt you were listening to that. No. What did you say? Sorry? No, it wasn't listening, sorry, no. no. Um, but <laughs> it was really, really formative because there used to be a presenter called Steve Penk and he used to do prank calls. Oh, and that right, was okay. so good. You know, yeah, yeah. anything like that I loved. But I didn't get hooked on the serious stuff till a bit later. Well, I remember, and this is this won't age well, this story, but I remember Jeremy Kyle, when he was on the radio doing his... Now, it was kind of like late-night confessions where it was the mm. same very, very late like, you know, midnight till three or something, where people could phone up anonymously and say, you know, I've slept with my sister or whatever it was. You know, it Brookside. was... Yeah, but it was... Yeah, <laughs> but it was unbelievably addictive. I of mean, course. in a sort of that terrible way, which obviously Jeremy Gull kind of Went became on... on uh, to and, do. And to do, yeah. Um, anyway, but now, you know, you're known for a lot of your job is sitting down with politicians and demanding some answers. Do you put yourself under pressure, though, to, especially, I guess, at in a time like this where people are expecting a lot of the people put in front of politicians. Yes. How do you deal with that pressure? Do you just try and stick to your game plan? It's hard because you want to do a good job. Yeah. Sometimes those people may never be interviewed again yeah. or for quite a long time. So you're the one with the platform and you're the one with the, the microphone to give to them and you want to do a really good job. You know, I, when I interviewed Theresa May, it was the only sit-down interview she did after the general election which was the biggest political gap she did after, thereafter, but I meant in the immediate aftermath. Yeah. It was the one that she chose to do. And we were in Downing Street and we were in her office, which, by the way, has a brilliant sign saying UK Prime Minister on the desk, just in case you forget. <laughs> and, um, you know, you want to get that right because here's a woman who's just come to office, second female Prime Minister, and thought she had a majority on her hands. Mm. And she didn't. How's that feel? You know, everyone who'd grabbed her for a few minutes, which had happened since the election, mm. and she'd given a speech on the steps of Downing Street, had attacked her. Yeah. That is not how we started that interview. We started the interview with like, a personal question. Literally, how are you? Mm. Followed by, how were you when you realised it had gone wrong? Mm. She then admitted she cried. She said, a tear. 
Just one. <laughs> that's, that's crying for three. Um, and yeah, I think he was actually, but yeah. she's a very reserved person in, in her personal and political dealings. So you've got to think who you're interviewing and get it right. It is a huge pressure, and I take it really seriously when it's those people especially. Mm. And then I also really feel, because of my training on radio for years and years and years, because recently joining Newsnight, is that I try to ask the questions very much on behalf of the audience. Sure. You know, because I feel like that's where I'm coming at it yeah. from. And that's where the sort of tension is. Yeah. To well, try and get those answers. So who's next? There's a long list. Um, obviously, there's always royals. Absolutely. You must feel the, the Megans, same. The Megans, the Harrys. Um, the Queen, why not? Oh, I'd love the Queen. I'd love, <laughs> love to get get inside that crown. Um, oh wow! Look at Hello, this. look at this. Here we are. Some food, please. <laughs> Yum! Thank Yummy. you so much. Wow, this looks amazing. That's delicious. Mm. Well, I think it's now is a perfectly good time to go onto your book. I'm really sorry, but I haven't read it. That's fine. I will, I will make amends. Um, but I am interested. You can in. buy someone or yourself a copy for Christmas. I will. Actually. Treat yourself. I will. Okay. Um, but it's around periods and mm -hmm. discussion around menstruation, and I guess are a continuing taboo around the subject in terms yes. of being able to talk about it openly and frankly amongst ourselves in wider society. Is that? Is yeah. That, I mean, I think I, on the like way that. here, a young woman in her twenties stopped me and be like, "I just read your book," and I was like, "Yes." And then she was like, "We need to talk about periods," and I was like. Yes! Let's have that chat in the middle of Soho. Um, no, but it was such a heart-swelling moment for mm. anyone who's written about anything, because someone's, you know, unlike you, read it. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But it's completely fair enough as well for, for women, especially, to say to me, listen, I've got a period every month, why do I need to read an entire book about it? What I would say is, I also didn't know I needed to write a whole book about it until I started looking into it. Mm. And really what it is, it's a collection of stories by and, and about women largely. Okay. There are male voices in there as well, often as men running countries who, who may have ignored periods. We can get right. to, there's a great period Brexit story, I can tell you, that's not oh, in the good. book. Okay, um, but but <laughs> I just thought, for me, the history and the culture of the taboo of something which is so regular in yeah. most women's lives. It's not like, oh, I had that thing that once in no. 1983. Yeah. It's like every month. Yeah. And yeah. even if you don't have an illness, which I do, mm. It is something that you just can't say, right? So we did a study on my radio show. This was all kind of the beginning of me thinking about this. Mm. We found that women would rather say they had the shits to their boss wow. when they were ill than a period. Now, this is not saying women who take time off every month, but let's say they were just feeling a bit crap and yeah. they needed to have a hot water bottle at their desk yeah. or maybe they needed to work from home that afternoon or do a call or do a presentation the next day. This is not me saying women are weaker. You try bleeding every month and doing everything the same. We also work, go to work till we're nine months pregnant, may I add, if we are physically able to, and most of us are, which is, I learned from Wired magazine, like running an ultra marathon every day. Yeah. So having done that as well. But my point is women are fucking nails. And if you think that we're not, mm. the fact that we do bleed every month and continue completely as normal mm. is amazing. Yeah. And Actually, feminism hasn't wanted to talk about this mm. because I get it. The third wave of feminism busts us into the workplace. Yeah. You didn't want to then be like, oh, by the way, you know we have babies. Because, yeah. We might not have to leave, but I also have a period. And sometimes I just need you to open the fucking window. <laughs> like, and not look at me like I just gave birth to an elephant on my desk. Like, yeah. it's not weird, some of the modifications. Mm. It's not weird that we have them. You know, the sleeve smuggle thing, like take a tampon, we put a bag inside a bag. If men had periods, Gloria Steinem wrote 
1978, they'd be standing on the corner of the street in Soho going, I'm a three-pad kind of guy. <laughs> but the point is, women have historically, for all very well-known reasons, been very good at accommodating the space that has been given to them, not taking space from the world and the structures that have been designed without them in mind. Mm. If men had periods, do you not think when they mandated that loo roll and soap would be free in every public toilet, and when I say public, I also mean your office, yep. you wouldn't have to pay £3 for a fat tampon out yep. of an old machine yep. that was put there in the 80s. Yep. They're probably past their sell-by yep. day. Some level of sanitary protection, I'm not saying there shouldn't be a private market, would be provided for free. Mm. You can start your period at any time, any place. This is like away from the discussion of poverty, but we of course go into that. Yeah. I of course go into that yeah. in the book. So the Brexit story, just very briefly, yes, is... please do. The tampon tax is a really weird thing. Yeah. A lot of people now know about that because of the amazing work that has been done by campaigners, namely in Britain, Laura Corriton, shout out to her. Mm. Uh, when she discovered this, she actually thought there was an error in what she had read. But essentially, <laughs> still, tampons and sanitary towels are a luxury. Crocodile meat is not. And what happened was Nigel Farage got involved with this. Mm. I think it's the first time Mr Farage has ever talked about periods in the Brexit campaign, because when we leave the EU, we can do whatever we want with our tax regime. Yeah. But in the 70s, when we joined the European Union, there was only one woman who was in any form of political office, and it was Margaret Thatcher. She wasn't the Prime Minister. Mm. And she, I think, was in education. And I've tried to find minutes from the meeting where it was mm. decided that tampons were a luxury, and I can't. Yeah. Uh, anyone got them? Get in touch. <laughs> and, of course, you could blame her. Why didn't she speak out? But at the same time, if you were the only woman, do you want to start shouting about your period in the 70s? So it's systematic of the sort of... The, 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 Just the men infrastructure. only. Yeah, Fast didn't... forward to 2019, you've got a man called Boris Johnson who's in a room, probably quite a hot room, trying to get a withdrawal act done, a new deal, or rather we should say 80% of Theresa May's deal through and a bit of 20% of his getting rid of the backstop. If you like these things, you'll know what I'm talking about. And the fly in the ointment, why we couldn't announce, or he couldn't announce, and we couldn't announce on the news that he had his deal in place until the next day. There was like this weird delay that mm. all reporters were a bit like, what was that about? Was tampons. I didn't know that. Because he had to get an exemption for Northern Ireland if they stay in the customs union, as is his deal. Mm. He has to allow them to come out of tampons being a luxury because he promised that as part of his Brexit deal. If you forget about women, the moral of the story is we will fucking come back to haunt yeah. you, as <laughs> Boris Johnson found out. So I can actually link periods to even the highest office in the land right now. Yeah. But the, it, the bigger thing is about forgetting women. So the book is about bringing together the stories of women that haven't been brought together before. It's, I mean, it's uh, shamefully a lot of those things I didn't know. And it's, and it's fascinating. I've given you some highlights. You have, it's great highlights. But it's also, it seems to me systematic of, because I was, you know, I, I guess, the, the kind of discussions I have around periods and, and you know, I have two daughters. Mm -hmm. Me and my friends, maybe we're just like London, super woke, London-centric guys. I got that families. vibe about you. Yeah, well, I am. Uh, um, but these aren't, these, these aren't problems with conversations they're having within families mm. and, you know, with husbands and wives and, and you know, uh, boyfriends and girlfriends. It's more when these, these conversations or women aren't being thought about in uh, offices of power or boardrooms, yeah, those arenas where... They're missing. The, yeah. 
I don't fully agree because I do think you're super woke and super enlightened. I well, think thank you very there much. is I'll, I'll a. Take that quote. I think there are loads of issues, especially with sometimes religious minorities, where mm. they have fathers who are quite traditional. Even their mothers don't really maybe want to tell them what's necessarily going on. Our sex education is paltry in this country. Yeah, right. So I think this is a a conversation that has not yet to be had in many homes. Yeah, yeah. And women, I don't want to give women another job, but men are never going to fight for this to go mm. away. But yeah. I just wanted to say one other thing is that by something staying taboo, mm. I use humour strategically in my whole life to be mm. taken very seriously. Mm. Especially as an northerner, I'm just like, come on, I want to get you on board. I don't care really about getting the woke crew necessarily on board because I want to tell you the stories you don't know. But, sure. but I actually also want to convince a whole other group of people about yeah. this. Because there's a really serious message, which is if you're health is threatened. So I have something called endometriosis. Yeah. I didn't know till I was 31. I was sleepwalking into infertility. I nearly didn't have any chance of having a child. The NHS stepped in and gave me IVF and remarkably it worked. I have met so many women with this condition who cannot have children and I feel ill every time I say I've had a child because the pain it must cause them. But I do use humour to be taken seriously and for others to join the conversation. And if something stays taboo, you can't laugh about it either. Like. What I learned in the book was we can also laugh a heck of a lot about this. I won't, you know, share lots of details, but just one thing is that a theme, if you like, mm. is that women become thieves when they're on their period. They steal <laughs> shit that is not theirs, right? So the amount of girlfriends of mine who answered a little questionnaire for me who were like, oh, yeah, when I leaked on my friend's bedsheet when I was... 14, I just stole the bedsheet because right. I couldn't tell the mum or the dad. What else do? Just like yeah. collect the evidence and quick, one quick, of my quick. Yeah, so there's a sex story in the book and I'll just very briefly say, because it made me laugh, <laughs> is there's a woman in America and she gave me permission to tell this story. She has sex with her co-worker. They work on a play. Okay, so it's like theatre people. Right. They've had a rap party. Right. They go back and then she's like, oh my gosh, we can't actually have sex even though I've wanted to the whole time we've worked together because I'm on my period, and she can't even say it, and she sort of, like, lets him know. I'm not quite sure how. Yeah. And Jeffrey, the period hero he is, is yeah. like, I don't care. So they have sex. Bring it on. Fine. In, a, I'm sure, a beautiful room like this. <laughs> and she turns the light on afterwards. He goes for a shower, and she's like, it's a fucking crime scene. Like, there's a red handprint on the wall kind of thing. She's horrified. She grew up in the South. Like, no one talks about it. She steals all of his bed linen. Like, all of it. <laughs> Puts it in a rucksack. Down to the mattress. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Like, yeah, the mattress is left. (laughs) And quite sadly for Jeffrey, she leaves without saying goodbye. She's mortified. Except she goes on the subway, and it's just after nine eleven, and they're doing spot checks on bags, and she gets asked to open her rucksack, and she says no, and the cop is like, "Get off the train." At this point, the actual thing goes through her head: Should I go to jail for my period? Wow. Because she's so embarrassed because it looks like a homicide. Obviously, yeah. Long story short, she's like, come with me. And she walks the cop back to Jeffrey's house. Oh, no. And the cop says to Jeffrey, can you explain? And pulls it out of the bag. And Jeffrey's like, yeah, we just had menstrual sex. And he just says it. And it's like... (laughs) like, Hero. Jeffrey can say it, but she can't say it. Yeah. I rest my case. Wow. Emma, it's been really very lovely. And I'm sorry you've been talking so much because you've vaguely been able to enjoy the the, the food. Yeah, I'm going to down a schnitzel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This episode of Eat, Drink, Chat was brought to you by Soho House and Radio Wolfgang. It was hosted by me, Jonathan Heath, and featured Emma Barnett. 
It was produced by Eli Block, Natalia Rodriguez, and Al Scott, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. Thank you.